I invite you to stand now. We're going to read scripture together. Scripture passage is found in your bulletin. We're going to be reading the first four verses of Revelation 21 and the first five verses of Revelation 22. If you have an ESV Bible or if you grabbed one from the back as you came in, uh, remind you that there are the Bibles by each of the doors as you come in. And uh, these are the last two chapters in the whole Bible, so easy to find. Let's read if, uh, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And then Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Stay standing as we pray together. Lord God, this is your truth. This is real. And I pray, Lord, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to see the hope that you have promised us here in your word. Oh God, would you give us the faith to receive this today and to believe it with all that we are and with all that we have. Holy Spirit, work here now as we hear your word. Help us to respond in a way that would bring you the most glory. Forgive us, grant us faith, O oh God, I pray. For Jesus' sake, and in his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we are here at the very last topic in our You Are Here series. Next week is going to be the conclusion to the series. And then the week after that, on Easter Sunday, we'll, we'll still reflect further on some of the themes in the light of the resurrection of Christ. But today is our last major stop in the series in terms of topics. It's hard to believe. It's, a year goes by so fast. Hopefully it's not a surprise to you today that we are considering how the biggest story ever told ends as today we talk about the new creation. 
today's going to be one of those moments. I'm, sh- I'm sure you've had those moments before yourself where you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and things are so tense, so uncertain that you just have to skip to the end and find out how it ends. You're not supposed to do that. I've done it a couple times, I'll admit. I remember watching one movie that was so tense and I knew it worked out, I was sure it worked out, but I just had to see how it worked out so that I could go back and actually enjoy the movie. And I don't think doing that is too bad because that's what God has done for us in his word. He doesn't just tell us, follow Jesus, things are going to work out, trust me. He tells us what's coming. He tells us what's going to happen. And so you and I, even though we are still in the story today, we get to read the back of the book, literally, and find out who wins. We get to know how it all works out. And as we're going to see today, and especially again next week in the conclusion, we're going to really see the difference that the ending makes for how we live our part of the story today. Now, this might sound interesting. I'm hoping that a lot of what we talk about today is going to be review. And, and the reason I say that is, one, one reason is we spent four sessions at family camp last June. By the way, family camp dates are in your bulletin. Mark them off. Make sure you're there. But we spent four sessions at family camp last June digging into this topic. And many times throughout this series, we've talked about the ending of the story, how it all ends. Even though much of this will be reviewed, though, it's still important for us to spend a whole week focused on this. We, we don't want to assume too much. We don't want to assume that we've put the pieces together properly. And even if we have, which I trust is true for many of us, I don't think we can hear about this stuff too often. I, I don't think I can hear about our hope too often. I don't feel like, oh, we talked about that at family camp. I'm good. doesn't work that way. We need this again. And so that's what we get to do here today. We're going to begin this morning by going back to the beginning and remembering God's purpose in creation. The whole reason for all of this in the first place. That's where we have to begin. We have to understand the beginning to understand the end. We'll remember that God created everything for his own glory. God created the world as a theater for his glory. He created us to be in that theater, to see his glory, and to respond in in worship and in love. But like we've seen, the worship and the love that we are to offer to God is not a passive mystical experience. God made Adam and Eve to work. He, he made them to be productive, to participate with God as covenant partners. It's, it's, a, it's a word that we haven't really used much in this series, but you think about being in a covenant with God means that we are in a partnership with him. God made Adam and Eve to rule the world as his representatives, to work and to keep the garden, to fill and subdue the earth. But they were to do this in close relationship with God. We saw how the Garden of Eden was really a temple, and Adam was a priest working and keeping and walking with God in this temple. And God would come, we don't know how often, but he would come and he would walk with them in that temple. He would communicate directly to them and he would have that close relationship with them as they served him and as they fulfilled their mission. So this beautiful blend of of relationship and productivity. And then the fall happened, sin happened, and, and all of this fell apart. Their relationship with God was permanently damaged. And their work was made painful, futile, hard. And so God put redemption into effect. God 
started to redeem and to save. And what I hope you've seen in these past months as we've gone through this series is that God's plan of redemption always had the goal of restoring us. One of the initial titles for this sermon was restoration. That's where it comes from. God's plan of redemption was to restore us to what he had created us for. To bring us back into covenant relationship with him. To bring us back into worshiping and loving him. To bring us back into walking with him. To bring us back into ruling with him. And so a, a big example of this is what God did with Israel, right? We saw how the tabernacle and later the temple, that was like a, a mini Garden of Eden. And the Levites there worked and kept it just like Adam did in the, temp, in the, in the garden. And through the tabernacle, God actually used the exact same word in Genesis 3 that he said that he walked among his people. And in the blessings of the covenant, God was like we've seen also, dialing back the curse, bringing Israel one step closer to paradise. That's what God's redemption with Israel did, is it, it brought them closer to Adam and Eve's experience in the garden. And yet we know because of sin, it didn't work. Israel broke the covenant. They ended up in exile, far away from God's presence. And so, through the prophets, God promised to come and fix things once and for all. He promised to come and remove sin permanently. He promised to come and bring a new creation and remove the curse permanently and to turn the whole world back into that paradise that he had always intended from the beginning. So we could spend all morning just reading promises in the prophets that speak of these things, but I'm gonna point us to one in Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to what God said would happen when the Messiah came to reign. This is what the Messiah was going to bring. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Adder's a snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See the picture here? Animals aren't eating each other anymore or hurting us anymore. There's no danger, right? See a kid playing with a snake and you're not scared. Everything here has been restored to the way that it was meant to be. This is that new creation that God has promised. And, and different prophets and different prophecies add to this picture. A significant one is in Daniel 12. Daniel tells us that a part of this experience is gonna be the resurrection from the dead, that those who died, Trusting in God died as righteous people are going to be raised from the dead. So just because we die before the Messiah comes doesn't mean we can't get in on this new creation. And so this was the hope of God's people. As, as God's people waited in the darkness of exile, this is what they were hoping for. The Messiah to come and to bring the new creation. And so when Jesus did come and people started to figure out that he is the Messiah, this is what they were expecting Jesus to bring. This is what they would have been waiting for. And, and it comes out in so many of the, word, the, the things that they said to Jesus. And it's very important for us to remember this morning that Jesus did 
bring the new creation, or at least Jesus began the new creation, or at least Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. This new creation that God promised began the moment that Jesus walked out of his own grave. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. But 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Farmers, gardeners all over here, you know what this means, right? The first fruits, the first ripe tomato, the first bushel of wheat that comes off the field. It speaks of what is still to come. Jesus is the first person to be a part of this great end times new creation resurrection that God promised. See, when's the new creation going to begin? It did. When is the resurrection going to happen? It began when Jesus was raised from the dead. He began the new creation. And, And when we are united to Jesus through faith, we are spiritually a part of that. That's what being born again means, right? When we are born again, that's because we are spiritually raised from the dead and made a part of this new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, and we can scratch that word a out, he is new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And these are all things that we have spoken of in, in past months And yet we know, even though our inner man is a part of that new creation, our inner self, our outer self is still wasting away with this old creation. We're still waiting. We're still groaning. We're still longing. We are in this time of, to use a phrase I've used many times throughout this series, already but not yet. And yet we know we know that the day's going to come when the not yet is just going to disappear. There's a day coming. I spoke of it earlier on in the service. God knows exactly the day it is. God, Heavenly Father, knows on a calendar the year, the date, the day of the week when the gospel will have been preached to all nations. When the full measure of God's chosen ones will have come to faith in their Savior when all of his purposes for this season of history will have been fulfilled and the day when Jesus Christ is going to return just like he promised. And then the day when all of God's enemies will be finally destroyed, the day when Satan himself has been thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever, the day when all of God's promises will have been fulfilled and the day, and I, I don't know how much we're going to get to see of that. I hope the day when God, what's he going to do? Speak a word? What's he going to do? But he's going to make creation new again. This cursed earth is going to shake off the curse. And all things will be made new. And God's people from all of time will rise with new bodies to a new life on a new earth. And there, finally, at last, we're going to experience the life that we were made for. 
And I know we've read Revelation 21, 1 to 4 already, but we can't hear these words too often. Hear these words, remembering the story, remembering where we've been, remembering the heaviness of the curse and of the exile and the darkness of the cross. Remember and hear these words, John saying, then I saw, God let him see, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, no more separation and chaos And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Those are the words, right, from every covenant that God made with his people. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And this is finally happening with all of God's people from all time, all together at the same time, perfect union with God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you hear what God is describing here? He's describing the perfect fulfillment of everything that he had always intended for the world. This is what his plan was from the very beginning, a paradise where he would live with his people. And it's interesting, we don't have time to to go into too much depth here, but if you read through Revelation 21 and 22, the final two chapters of the Bible, you will hear echo after echo after echo of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible. What we see here is that God is bringing creation back to what it was supposed to be in Eden. For example, here's just one. Did you notice in chapter 22, verse 2, the tree of life makes an appearance again? The tree of life, that, that other tree in the garden. The, the, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they wouldn't eat from this tree of life and live forever. It was mercy that he did that. And yet here it is. The tree of life is here in this holy city and it's there for us to eat and partake in as much as we want for the healing of the nations. Chapter 22, verse 3 tells us very clearly, no longer will there be anything accursed, right? The the, the curse is done. That that, that curse from Genesis 3 is lifted. Creation is set free from its futility. And on that new earth, we're going to experience what we were made for in Eden. Do you remember how God intended Adam and Eve to reign with him, to reign under him as his representatives? And chapter 22, verse 5 says, and they will reign forever and ever. In Christ, we're going to be restored to that office, that royal office, bearing the image of God and reigning as his representatives forever. And so in in so many ways, the new creation that's coming is going to be like Eden. And yet, I hope you've caught it, that what we read here is not just like Eden. It is better than Eden. It is way better than Eden. Our experience in the new creation is going to be so much better than what Adam and Eve got to experience and taste in the garden. We're not going to be just innocent, right? They were innocent. They knew God as their creator, and that's it. We're going to know God as our redeemer. We're going to know what it's like to have been so broken by sin, and then to be redeemed by love And to know God who loved us and pursued us and saved us. We're going to know Christ as our husband who came and laid down his life for us. 
And we are never going to run out of praise for the Lamb of God who was slain. Genesis 3 talks about how God would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. But in the new creation, he's actually going to dwell with us. He's not going to have to come down to be at our level. Our level is where he's going to live. Just think about that. Heaven and earth are not going to be two different places. They're going to be one place. And do you have any idea how wonderful that's going to be? Psalm 16, 11 says to God, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that fullness of joy at the right hand of God is going to be ours to see and taste forever. Like Revelation 22, verse 4 says, one of the most precious verses in the Bible to me, they shall see his face. You want to know what happened? If you saw God's face today, you'd die. We can't see his face. That's why we, we walk by faith and not by sight. But there, we're going to have new bodies, new eyes, new hearts, and we're going to be able to see what today we can only believe. We will walk by sight and not by faith. And we're finally going to be included into the greatest experience of all, the love of the Trinity. We saw this back in September. Our eternal destiny has been to be caught up within the fellowship and the love of the Trinity that's been going on before we were ever around. In the new creation, we'll finally be able to see the glory of Jesus and to love him with the very same love that the Father has for him, which was the plan from the beginning. We read about that in John 17. And that's what's coming for us. So here's a way of summing all of this up. Our experience in the new creation will be the perfect realization of everything that we were created for. C.S. Lewis expresses this so perfectly in his book, The Last Battle, the conclusion to the Chronicles of Narnia, which is in our church library now, by the way. And in that book, he pictures a group of characters arriving in the new creation. And one of them says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. Do those words touch something deep and secret in your heart? Our whole lives looking for something and not knowing it, and there finally will be home. I hope you hear this morning that eternity is not going to be boring. I don't know what you were told in Sunday school, but our eternal destiny is not to float around in a, cla- in a castle in the clouds. Eternity is not going to be like a church service that never ends or a family reunion that never ends. Our eternal life on the new earth is going to be life, real life. Life to the full, like Jesus said, better than we ever could have dreamed. What we need to know, what I've sought so hard to teach my kids, what we need to understand is that every good experience that we've had in this life, here and now, 
every fleeting moment of genuine joy, every fleeting moment of, of real satisfaction, because aren't they so few and far between? Don't they get so easily washed away with cares and struggles and distraction? But every real moment of genuine joy and satisfaction that we've had in this life is just a taste, just a little glimpse of the true reality that's waiting for us in the new creation. The reality that we've been waiting for our whole lives and have never known it. And friends, we have no idea at the adventures that are awaiting us in the new creation. Just think about it. If this is not real life, if that is real life, just think of the kinds of things that we've been able to do and to figure out in this life, in this experience. We're plagued by sin. We only live eight or nine decades and when we die. And yet in this state, we've been able to do incredible things like land on the moon. We've been able to make incredible things. We've been able to have amazing experiences. And just think of all that we're going to be able to do with perfect bodies, perfect minds, perfect hearts, and eternity to spare. Can you imagine? I'm going to poke your imagination a little bit here. Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Did you catch that? I think when we often hear that, we hear that his kingdom, his government is gonna last forever, but that's not what it says. It says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The empire of King Jesus is going to keep on growing and growing and growing and growing forever. And now we consider the fact that it's not just a new earth that God is gonna create but a new heavens and a new earth. And this has caused some people like, like Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, to wonder, are we really gonna be confined to the new earth forever? Or are we gonna get to go explore the cosmos, rule over other planets and solar systems and galaxies? And I say, why not? We're just a few, as sinful, broken people, we're just a few years away from landing on Mars. Why would we not be able to do stuff like that in the new creation? We've been able to dream up stuff like Star Wars. Why would the new creation be more boring than that? But here's the deal. We, we, whatever we can think of, it's going to be better. Whatever we can think of, it's going to be more exciting. And what I'm trying to communicate here this morning is that all this talk about the end of the story is actually quite misleading. Revelation chapter 22 is not the end of the story. Revelation 22 is when the story actually begins. Everything from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 is a prologue. You know what a prologue is, right? A little piece at the beginning of a book that just sets the stage when we burst out of our graves, when you burst out of your grave to a new creation, that is when the story will really begin. And once again, C.S. Lewis helps us out here. In the last battle, as the characters explore their version of the new creation, they finally meet Aslan and he tells them, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And he goes on to write, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, 
But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that is the truth. That is what you and I have to look forward to. The biggest story ever told going on forever and forever, age after age of eternal, unending joy. Now, at this point, I want to ask two questions about all of this to help us work this truth into the fabric of our lives a little bit more. Because if this is true, and if we are really a part of this story today, this needs to connect with us in some important ways. So here's one question. This might sound a little off topic, but it's, I trust you'll see that it's not. Everything that we've talked about today, it sounds like it's going to happen after the end. After the return of Jesus. After the final judgment. If that's true, then what do we have to look forward to until then? So here's what I'm asking. What happens to us today when we die? The answer is that when we die today, our souls leave our bodies. And if we have been saved by Jesus, then our souls will go to be in the presence of God in heaven. Heaven is a place today where God dwells and rules. And, and, and passages like 2 Corinthians 5.8 point us in this direction. They speak about death as being away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what happens today when we die. Our souls leave our bodies, go to be with God. And that is wonderful. It will be better than anything that we experience today, right? That's why Paul in First Corinthians, sorry, in Philippians one said that his desire was to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, right? If we were to die today and our souls were to go to be with God in heaven, that would be better than what we experience right here and now. But what I'm trying to help us understand here this morning is that. The way that heaven is right now, our souls being away from our body, that's not our final stop. Our final stop is when heaven comes down to earth and God dwells here with us. And we won't just be a soul, but we'll actually be in a new body again, living with God on a new earth. That is our ultimate hope. So think about it this way. Imagine you were living in a tent because you lived in a tent. And one day a terrible storm came through and it flattened your tent, completely destroying it. I've experienced that storm, a wind so strong it snapped the fiberglass poles in half. And so someone sees you standing there beside your flattened tent. 
And they say, is that where you lived? And you say, yeah. And they say, well, here. And, and, and they take you and they put you up in a really nice hotel for a few weeks. Beautiful five-star hotel. Pay for everything. And then after a few weeks, they come and they say, hop in the car. I got something to show you. And what they've done is they have built or bought for you a brand new, gorgeous house where you get to live. And it's all yours so was the hotel better than the tent? Yes. But it was just temporary. Better than the hotel is your own place where you get to be permanently. And that's a way to try to understand. Today, if we die, our souls go to be in heaven. It's like an amazing five-star hotel. Way better than this tent that we're living in right now. But even better yet, will be the new creation, the city that has foundations where our souls are going to be reunited with our bodies and everything will be as it was meant to be from the beginning. I'm going to be posting some more on the blog this week about that, so you can check that out to dig into that idea a little bit more. Now here's the second question I want to ask us this morning. It might sound strange to you, but I'm going to ask it. Why does this matter? Everything I've talked about this morning already. Why does it matter? Why is it important? I mean, I hope it sounds nice. It sounds really nice. But why does it matter? Here's why it matters. When we believe what God has told us about the new creation, when we believe that eternal adventure, eternal joy in the presence of God is ahead of us, when we really believe that, then we will have the courage and the freedom to sacrifice here and now for Jesus the way that he's asked us to. I'm connecting us back up to last week because Jesus does ask us to sacrifice for him. If anyone would come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To be a follower of Jesus is to be willing to do anything that Jesus asks you to do up to and including crucifixion. But Jesus doesn't ask us to sacrifice just because. Jesus is not out to spoil our fun as so many of us thought when we were teenagers. Jesus asks us to sacrifice temporarily in view of eternity. Because what did Jesus go on to say in the very next verse? Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see what he's saying? If we refuse to take up our cross, if we try to hang on to our best life now, then we're going to end up losing it. But if we lose our life here and now, if we lay it down for Jesus' sake, then we actually will gain life in eternity, in the new creation, eternal life. And it's that hope of the new creation that frees us up to give up literally everything here and now. The Christian life, with all of its sacrifice, with all of its self-denial, it only makes sense and it's only possible if we have a strong hope in the resurrection, in the new creation. This is what Paul was getting at when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Did you hear what he just said? If being a Christian was only about what you got out of it in this life, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. If being a Christian was only about what we got out of it in this life, we are worse off than the rest of people. Isn't this so different from the way that we so often think, right? We've been told, come to Jesus for all the good things he'll do for you in this life here and now. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. If, if all we get out of it is this life here and now, not worth it. We're to be most pitied because all we would have done is missed out, sacrificed, denied ourselves for nothing. He goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 15, 30 to 32, he says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And, and there, maybe talking about people, or he may have literally been in one of those gladiatorial things with the wild beasts coming at him. He said, then he says this, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection to look forward to, forget about being a missionary, forget about being a Christian. Just settle in and eat and drink. Enjoy life. But if there is a resurrection, if there is a new creation coming, if there is reward for us, which we're going to hear about next week in eternity, then get up and lose your life for the sake of Christ because we're not actually sacrificing anything. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us, right? Choosing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Choosing, think of the things we've heard in this series. Choosing to not store up treasures on earth. Choosing to lay down the priority of family relationships. Choosing to embrace things like singleness. Choosing to move across the world to an unreached people. Saying goodbye to our family and our stuff. None of that is even worth comparing to the glory that's waiting for us in the new creation. And so that's how it works. That's how we sacrifice. That's how we do the hard things is we set our hope on the reward that's being offered and promised to us. So if you have found in your own heart in recent weeks, as we've heard about some of these things, if you found yourself struggling to obey, struggling to be willing to do these things, struggling to feel like that's something you actually want to do, then I beg you to soak yourself in scripture. Read what God has promised. Ask God to open your eyes to it, right? Ephesians 1 prays for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Because as eternity, as the new creation, as the resurrection grows in our hearts as a real thing that we set our hope on and sacrificing for Jesus here and now becomes not even a sacrifice at all. So how do we finish off a message like this? We finish it off together. That's how. We're going to finish proclaiming this truth together by celebrating the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to preach to each other here, folks, as we eat and as we drink. We proclaim that Jesus died and that Jesus is coming again. We proclaim that what we see with our eyes is not all that there is. We proclaim this morning, folks, that the new creation is real and that it's already begun and that one day it is going to come in its fullness. And we also remember 
that the only way that we can experience this new creation is to receive what Jesus did for us on the cross. Please hear, if you're here this morning and you don't know that Jesus died for your sins, the hope of the new creation is not for you, at least not yet. Apart from faith in Jesus, our eternity will be filled with God's deserved judgment. But what we celebrate in this meal is that Jesus suffered God's judgment for us on the cross. Jesus bought the hope of the new creation for us with his own blood. So I would beg you this morning to come to Christ. To trust that he paid for all of your sins on the cross and rose from the dead as your king and as your Lord. And if you believe that, if that is your faith this morning, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. And then after that, we're going to sing and then we're going to get to celebrate as Matthew Fenske seals his faith in Christ through baptism. Let me pray for us now as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. God, please strengthen our faith to see and to believe and to perceive the hope that you've prepared for us. And make that hope so deep and so strong and so real, Lord, that we will gladly take up our crosses and follow. That we will gladly lose our lives here and now to gain them with you in eternity. Help us to believe that you are coming again. Help us to believe the hope laid up for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name.